Good afternoon. Oh, let's lower my chair a little bit. Let's get myself in frame. Forget how big my hair is these days. Hi, I'm Jack Chu. My chair's still squeaking. I'm going to swap that over though for next week. I promise. Um, we chew it over 12.30 till 1 o'clock. If you're new round here, we discuss all things relevant to MSK practice, healthcare, and whatever's topical in culture that intersects with those very important things that I'm into. And on Friday's show, it ends up being just extra casual. It's a pretty casual show, but on Fridays, it's extra casual. I don't know why. It just feels that way. It's that Friday feeling. And you guys tend to weigh in a little bit more on Fridays, which is good. So I hope this isn't any different. At a moment's notice, I dropped my good friend, Rob Bevan, my friend, colleague, esteemed professorial thinker as he is, dropped him a message saying, this is what I'm talking about on today's show. I think it was like three minutes before we went on. I said, this is something you'd be interested in. Um, oh, Alistair says that he thinks it's microphone. Microphone's not working. Okay, Ali, is that any better? You've got to let me know. Rob's in the lobby. He says that it's working okay, so hopefully we can just crack on. But anyway, yeah, a moment's notice. I dropped Rob a text, said, this is what I'm talking about, and it's got your name all over it, and he agreed, and he's joining me to do it. So I'm going to bring him in. Rob, are you there? I'm here, mate. Can you hear me? Yes. Nice one. And, yeah, pretty – I mean, we, we're used to short notice, aren't we? But that was yeah. – that was a new yeah, I think I think it's 12.27 you messaged me, so <laughs> Brilliant, yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk about this, and it's not been necessarily planned. It's on my like list of things when there's no guest on type list, right, where at a moment's notice I'm like, I'd love to talk about that. And so that's where I just thought of you is what I wanted to try and do is kind of visit. It's a question and a comment that many people make, really. I, I, I hear it all the time. Um, and I think... Right, so Ali, can someone clarify whether or not this is a problem with Alistair's speakers or my microphone? <laughs> because I've I've tweaked a few dials. Rob can hear me fine. I can. I can you're coming through fine as well, my end. But hi, Michael. Risk, risk, It's a brilliant surname. I'm sorry, I'm mispronouncing it. Um, so anyone else that's tuning in, um, let me know if, it, if it's my mic or Ali's speakers. So um, I wanted to talk about this topic and because a lot of people ask us that question. And it, it seems to be, regardless of what sector or discipline you work in, it tends to be a question that people get asked, that people ask us, because they're sort of meaning, if you double down on being the best clinician you can be, does that pay in that is it something that is worthwhile on a career sense? Like... Is it something that really does eventually pay dividends? People notice it, that sort of thing. Does your management manager get it? You know, what if my manager wasn't a good clinician and therefore they think I'm wasting my time and they'd just rather I chomp through some numbers or help the waiting list and didn't really care about the clinical delivery? And then on a business level, it often people wonder, well, some of the best paid therapists I know are just the cowboys that me and you are often critical of on our therapy business matters show and, and elsewhere and, and, and the things yeah. that me and you are passionate about on the MSKR side across both our physiotherapy side and your chiropractic side. We yeah. both care deeply about that stuff. So there's almost like a cynicism that people are kind of are trying to fight against to think that they don't want to succumb to that, but they also are a bit nihilistic about does it even matter? Are we ever going to get valued? So can I throw it to you first on the business side then? As a as a clinician, a business owner, MDT clinic, and growing, what's your take on that 
That's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think that arguably it's yes and no. I think that people pay for a degree of certainty. Um, and the more we know about MSK, the less certain we can be. <laughs> so when someone has, you know, they've had pain for 10 years and someone's saying to them, however unscrupulously, you know, I can get rid of this pain for you, then, you know, they're going to pay whatever whatever that, that, that takes, however unscrupulous they are or however kind of non-evidence-based they are. That's always going to be a bit of a problem. So I think that on one hand, no, but then on the other hand, yes. And if we look at in the, the medical world, on average, the highest paid people are generally probably the most qualified. I'm talking very generally here. And that means in terms of consultants, you know, look, look at consultants hourly fee compared to someone else's hourly fee. Possibly, you know, you can't really compare, say that they're better or worse, but, you know, they're generally the kind of them, the, the top of their profession. And people will charge more when they get to that level. So I think that yes and no, I don't think price will dictate um, clinical excellence. So I don't think you are paying necessarily means you get better service in yeah. any way. And I think that's that, that's true across all, you know, all industries really. Mm. Um, but it is, you know, it's definitely, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a really hard question really, I think. It's, well, no, it's, a, a it's, right it's absolutely, it's meant to be. I think that you can, you can argue it both ways. I think one of the things I've really wanted to try and discuss and why it was one for chewing it over rather than it being like this is a conclusion I've come to. It's definitely one I want to draw the audience in on. So thank you to those that are posting comments and I really do want you guys involved in this. Is that I agree with Rob there, which is funny because it's a three minutes notice. It's not as if we planned this, but he's describing that there can be some short-term challenges to it. That yeah, there's some people that have got a lot of courage in their convictions, uh, a bit narcissistic and therefore, uh, and, a, and a misreading or lack of reading of, of an evidence base that then would allow them to, to check themselves means that they then end up selling selling uh, conviction which which can be yeah. attractive in the short term but then they end up typically letting people down i know from our second opinion work and the way that we've positioned ourselves in, in in our clinical business and where i started my origin story going in as a second opinion even relatively junior in my career for people to just be honest with them be honest with their coach be honest with their directors of their semi-pro club of which we're about to shell out for a third mri scan and instead can instead back their therapist to actually do some rehab those sorts of stories make me realize that it's yes it can cost you in the short term but no it won't cost you long term and therefore you, you know I, i'm always encouraging people that this is worthwhile and i think it's sometimes hard to to pick people up for that though because they've they've had a few you know sometimes it can take a few punches locally finding out about said unscrupulous clinicians a few doors down that that might be doing something differently and and driving around in a in a better car than them thinking well why is it that I, I'm a, I'm aspiring to be rehab centric and trying to to engage therapy uh, engage my patients in a collaborative approach rather than just say passive and gimmick related care. Um, it's hard to see. It's hard to see that, and right. I think that money is the, money is the ultimate motivator, really, um, across all industries, not just healthcare. And when you you know these you know people are very driven by money. They're driven by you know things they don't need but they want to buy. So if you're you know slightly that way inclined, and I think that is probably the the vast majority of people, myself included, you know, are motivated by that. I would be lying if I said I wasn't. Um, that you know, it's it's very easy to slip into that kind of you know that side of things and you know and i think that new grads especially they come out you know students don't these students don't have money they work for practices which you know you and i probably wouldn't work in but you know or definitely wouldn't work in but it's it's an easy sell and selling certainty to patients that you know 
all we have to do is sign up for this and it's on the grand scheme of things you know 1500 quid you know yes it's a lot of money but it's not you know a million pounds um you know people will pay that because it, they don't have to remortgage their house to do it um and you know in, in so, so, so it's not you know to a lot of people to get out of pain that's not a huge amount of money however you know unnecessary it is unnecessary it is have you experienced hitting a fork in the road at, at various different moments in your business growth where you've kind of felt well we i, I know that 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 would be a short-term solution to to more capital but instead i want i, I you, you re re refer back to your values and remember why you're in this and that the long game is more important. You know, how, how often does that happen? And when it has happened, how difficult are those decisions for you as a business owner? I think it happened me to me probably more when I wasn't a business owner and when I was in kind of working for someone else. Um, and I think that that seeing colleagues and friends, you know, having that money and having that, you know, the lifestyle, which potentially that I wanted, and then saying, oh, if I just saw this patient a few more times, or if I just, or maybe if I did a package of 12 treatments or 24 treatments or 72 treatments, whatever it was, that'd be really easy because I'd only need to see one new patient a week. And then I'd have this, this huge, you know, uh, this huge amount of money. Um, and I think that that, you know, my, my ethics overshadowed that. And, but I think that I was lucky that I was in a practice that didn't push that. It wasn't that way inclined at all. Um, as an, whereas I know colleagues who are, have been in or, and are in practice like that, where it's very much pushed that way. So I think it was harder for me as a, as what we call an associate working with someone else. Now as a business owner, I think I will think about the reputation of the business and that kind of the, you know, how I want the business to sit in the community over, um, you know, the, the financial reward, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I know that, you know, around me or locally, there are, you know, clinics which have different morals to mine. And I see a lot of patients because of that. So then I will also probably almost go too far in the other direction um, mm. to try and disassociate myself with, with with that, which is also a problem because, you know, arguably, and we've spoken about this before on on our podcast, you know, the, the, the therapy business um, about how you can go too far in the direction and people do want, you know, do want guidance and do want care. And if you're dismissing everyone and not following people up correctly, then th that's arguably difficult too. So there is a balancing act, but, mm. you know, it's you know as michael said to be be certain in uncertainty you know and it's <laughs> that's an interesting uh, interesting comment absolutely yeah and i think that 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 is something that i would you know i love that the conversation's gone there in that the there is uncertainty in in the clinical decision making in in many ways you know the co various different causally relevant information that you might draw from people in a in a thorough assessment these days it means that then there is more contributing factors it's vaguer, it's more complex, it's more uncertain. Therefore, there's a way in which you can then communicate that. An expert clinician doesn't then unload all of that uncertainty, un untrammeled, un unfiltered to the back to the patient. But it also admits to having a working hypothesis and a collaborative approach to trying things and, and the scaling someone's functional abilities within their the constraints of their specific goals rather than being dictatorial as to this is the style of care we're going to deliver in this manner to you at you on you and it you know it's one of the things that's interesting and why the former words that i chose for the title of this you know does it pay is because you know you sometimes say does honesty pay off you know i'm not necessarily just associating the money to it but we're right to talk about money because that is one of the ways in which value is ascribed and associated and a motivating factor for people to 
to uh, achieve various different things and goals in their own lives. And and so I'm, I, I'm it's a funny one because um, as, a, as an entrepreneur and as a business owner, I have to pay attention, of course, to, to money. It motivates me in some ways, but as a material, I'm not particularly material. Um, it, it won't surprise anyone as they look at me with my 90s boy band haircut that cost me eight pound a quarter uh, to get tidied up. I'm someone that's uh, famously untrendy in every which way. It means that that kind of helps in some ways. But the reason I bring that up is because even though I'm not that guy, it's certainly naive and, and I think a bit foolish for, for people to imply that money doesn't matter at all to them or doesn't motivate them at all, in part because there is something that even on a social value level, for a, a sense of fairness, if you are you know, across a, across a desk from, from someone that is being paid more for the same work. There's an, inju- an inherent social injustice to that, that we kind of know that if we're living in a society of which yeah. ascribes this value um, and there is a base rate and a minimum wage and the likes of that, then we need to recognize and be valued appropriately, regardless of the material things of which you can buy with it. And so that's why I talk about, does it pay? Meaning, is it worthwhile in every yeah. in every discipline and every industry? And what you've just described there, Rob, makes a lot of sense where you've got to, You've got to see that that bigger picture and reputation. That can be something that is incredibly uh, challenging and costly to build up, but it can plummet off a cliff. Um, and that's clearly something that you've got in mind when making those decisions. Do you find that motivating your staff in the same direction? Because you've mentioned then, as an associate, you felt slightly differently. How about your associates and your staff? Do they sometimes wonder why is it why is it matter if I'm particularly clinically excellent at treating the rotator cuff if my patients like it for now then why does it matter I, I think that that comes down to partially how you've chosen your staff and i think you know my you know obviously singing <laughs> talking very well about my staff i've you know selected people who are very well in line with my beliefs and our clinic's philosophy right. um so someone who came in who had a very different mentality to that wouldn't work so it wouldn't fit in it wouldn't fit in with our clinic you know our clinic processes so i think that comes down to how well you've set that up and set up that ethos in your practice with everything from your from your admin team to your current patients to your other staff members and if you had someone who's coming in saying oh i'm going to see you for 10 minutes i'm going to see you 24 times you know and that patient's been seeing someone else they're going to think well hang on a minute this is this is something different or you know why is this different or the reception team are going to start questioning think question it thinking Oh, you, you, sorry. You want you want to work how many how many appointments? You know, and it wouldn't. Uh, so the culture, it it, it, yeah, it contrast with the culture of the. Yeah, so it contrasts with the culture. So I think that comes down to how the culture which you have in your clinic, and that is a is a vital part of any of any business really, not just healthcare. That kind of fitting into the the pre existing culture. Um, but no, I think that having that discussion with staff around why we do stuff is important. Um, I haven't needed to have that. Um, Maybe I should have done, but I haven't needed to have that because, hmm. you know, I trust my staff's judgment. Um, I'd refer my, you know, my grandparents to see all of them because I trust their, their judgment and what they do. Um, so I think that that yeah, ethos is, is the biggest part of it when it comes to it. And that keeps people in line and stops them. I say stops and going off on a tangent because it's not for me to con- it is for me to control it. But it's, it's their clinical decision at the end of the time. I'm not going to sit down there with people monthly and say, oh, you've seen this patient six times when he i probably would have seen them three times over six weeks or whatever it was you know i'm not that's yeah. what people do that's not my job you know it'd be a, uh, weird, yeah it'd be a, that'd be a weird micromanagement wouldn't it and clearly someone exactly. that, that's kind of got an, an insecurity over why they needed to transmit not just a clinical model of, of, of care delivery but then sort of the, the clinical operation side to it which 
they're going to have better insight than you would, whether, whether you're reading re records or looking at numbers and stuff, is that, that you've got to have hoped you've hired the right people to then be able to back their clinical decision and that they have better insight than you and always will do. You hear, though, don't you, of that micromanagement happening, whereby it's not just someone saying, we like to have this clinical ethos here. There's sometimes people being fairly heavy-handed in the fact that they want to imply that the data needs to be such a way for the yeah. clinical product to be consistent. And that seems to – I've never heard of that being done without it undermining clinical judgment and that there is someone that's being a business leader or a, or even outside of business just being a manager of services that then is implying that my way or the highway or I would do that better. It's not I'd do it differently or asking questions. It's, it's an inference that there's a, a higher quality of, of, of either more or less care. Yeah, and that's not saying that you know measuring KPIs and stuff are are not important because it, it does give things, but it's it's that micromanagement week to week, month to month, singular patients as opposed to things across the board. You know, if you're having fifty percent of your patients not turn up to their follow up, you know, then there's obviously something going on there. You know, that's slightly yeah. different. So keeping an eye across those metrics is important, but it's that overarching view as opposed to you know helicopter management or helicopter you know you're not like helicopter parenting isn't it sure. micromanaging every single decision i think with and we we do this on our podcast which we need to record a fresh one you know we text this morning didn't we about that let's, let's yeah. get that together but um you've got to give the people what they want rob you know of course we do <laughs> yeah. but i wanted to sort of mention on that show we often talk about like it's not that dissimilar to clinical practice in that, and we and we use like an analogy. And in this instance, it feels fairly straightforward in that you you, you can you can understand why people would would want to um, want to to constrain and restrict the way in which people practice because it's informed by the evidence, right? So you get get an RCT that comes through that kind of rocks our world that tells us something about shoulder pain. And the application of that, any contemporary clinician that's thoughtful about this will integrate that no, new knowledge within to their reasoning framework, right? It might expose yeah. certain corners of it, it might surprise us, but you'll integrate it into your reasoning. Whereas others would want it to be almost like a battering ram, and that should then be the starting point. It should be the new foundations for everyone else's thinking and stuff. And it's a bit of a clumsy sort of in a sense of empiricism. On the business level, if that's how you're using KPIs as a battering ram, rather than isn't this an interesting piece of information to yeah. start to a jigsaw piece within the puzzle rather than the puzzle itself? That's how yeah. I see these things because it's certainly not, you know, be, be clumsy if I were to come across as if I was being dismissive of that data being brought to bear in people's evaluations, either of themselves or of a service and stuff. But it's just that then if you don't drive towards the clinical excellence within those interactions then what is it for what are we doing we're meant to be helping people with their sorbets right what what on earth are we doing if we're leading with the data as a consequence rather than the care delivery yeah. and i think that that's something obviously we have a, a lot of kinship for do you think that there's do you think we're, where would you say we are and are we in the majority or the minority on on that on our instincts in that you know i think we're the i think we are moving into the majority in that i think that um you know, if you're taking professions out of it, I think that across all, yeah. if we call MSK professionals, I think we're in the majority with that. And I think that that is something then which will also come with experience. And maybe that is what that clinical excellence comes along with is experience. And that might be something that we're not accounting for. And, you know, if you're looking at someone who's been treating shoulders for 30 years, you know, and people jump to mind, but if someone's been treating shoulders for 20, 30 years, 
they're going to take that they've had 30 years of that clinical experience and the all of the new brand new papers that have just come to the forefront over 30 years they'll be they'll be relying on that whole body of evidence mm. and experience as well which we undermine whereas if you and i graduate tomorrow and start seeing shoulders we can be aware of that entire body of evidence but we don't have that experience and maybe that you know that experience is what you know counts largely towards clinical excellence is experience mm. over that because anybody can I say anyone, most people can interpret an RCT and implement that into, into a program, into a you know, management for, with a patient. But that expertise, which you have from 20 years, will play hugely in that. Um, mm. And maybe I said, maybe that's what counts as clinical excellence or counts Especially, a big part towards well, it. Well, it should be, shouldn't it? Especially that, yeah. that reflective practitioner, what they're doing in that time matters, doesn't it? You know, you can have like, yeah. people, I've got good friends who are brilliant clinicians now, but they'll talk about, a window of their career in which they feel that they weren't they, they weren't getting the you know reflecting appropriately they weren't supported that sort of stuff i think it's it's an interesting one um got some great comments coming in so i want to make sure i bring you guys in as well um another one cracking one from michael here great clinicians i believe communicate really well and connect with people as well as understand research if you connect well with humans you'll be busier and get paid more on a commission model you know the, the, this idea of and he's mentioned there at the end there's a few different ways in which that pays off, doesn't yeah. it? And and that speaks to what you were describing is that it, it's not even that long a game, but at least in the medium term, you know, it comes back around, doesn't it? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that, that relies on the business management referrals and all those things that come with it. You know, if you're known as the person that isn't going to rip someone off, then that's always a, uh, you know, a, a good business model for you, isn't it? Yeah, when your referrers start sending them their family or turning up themselves with their, with injuries, then you, you know that there's something there, but they're, they're trusting you on a, a slightly deeper level than it just being convenient. Because sometimes, yeah, you can't take too much in referrals because sometimes it's you've made it convenient for them, you're local, people fancy it. Whereas then when you start to get that deeper level of referral, then it makes a big difference, doesn't it? Angie's made up a great point here. I'd love you to, to unpack for us, actually, Rob. Undertreating may be more unethical if the person re-injures such a balance. It's a, such a great point, isn't it? So, um, what, what, just yeah, just take that a bit further because it reminds me a bit with you to have that in our last therapy business matters mm. podcast. But um, yeah, just what, what does Angie, what's Angie mean in there? What examples could you could you give us? So, I think we do we speak about ACL or hamstring? I can't remember. It was something. It was like it was an acute. It was an acute, you know, grade two hamstring or an ACL, something hamstring. like that. And what I think we were saying about if we have a football player and he's saying, "I want to go back to football. I want to go back to running," and you know. It's very hard to let a patient to give bad news to a patient and saying to someone, you know, this is going to be three to six months before you are doing X, whatever that that task may be. Um, but then it's very easy to then, oh, do you think I could do this? Do you think I, oh, how about a quick game this weekend, or could I give it a go? And it's very, I've done it and I've been there and I've said, oh, maybe try it, you know, because you want to please that patient, and it's really difficult not to. And I think that that kind of undertreatment, yeah, you should be fine, you know, go see how it goes, and not following up and not giving those patients correct expectations that then leads to re-injury you know if you're sending someone four weeks after an acl tear to go and play a football match because they've asked you if it's okay then that's probably not going to end for end end well or not likely going to end well for that patient so there is that kind of expectation and you know if you're not telling someone that this is going to be you know six months plus of recovery whatever that is that doesn't mean you're seeing them every day um but it just means that you're, you're checking in you're following you're emailing you're managing their expectations and their recovery yeah. then you know that is that is good practice yeah it's a really good point and and you know angie i think that sometimes we do 
we talk, and I've made this mistake, uh, hopefully less so these days, but I, I talk about the unethical upsell um, more than I do the unethical downsell and the fact that sometimes people are underserved is clumsy. And, and also, it's it's not just on, a, on an interventional level or one therapist. It's like the service spec of some businesses in our space sometimes leave people hanging. You know, uh, we we see a lot of second opinions where people aren't happy with the care that they've had before. But we also see some people that were really happy with it, but it left them at 70%. And they want to, yeah. and they want, and they want to get back to their PBs if it's an athlete, or they want to actually get back to being able to tolerate overtime in a warehouse, and 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 that their their back sort of flares up because they've not quite got the capacity, for want of a better term, or they're, they're just not hundred percent yet. They've kind of been been discharged a bit soon, or they've not those 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 services don't have the provisions or resources or staff skill set to to see them all the way there. Um, you know that that's something that. Isn't that's not over? That's that's under treatment, really, for that person's specific goals. Or they've not been given the, the appropriate guidance to get himself all the way to hundred percent. You know, yeah. of course, I'm discharging people at seventy percent plenty of times, if appropriate, for the fact that the trajectory means that they're likely to be there in, in yeah. a matter of weeks, or or that's their choice, especially those that are traveling away. Dependent. Yeah, because well. some patients are going to some going to going to expand, and some people, you know, you can send people away after, you know. They can be in a lot of pain, but they know they're they're capable of managing it, and they can be fine with an email in a week or a phone call in a week. Whereas some people are going to need a bit more handholding. But that is the part of our job is recognizing yeah. who those people are. Absolutely. Now, one thing I wanted to make sure I throw in there as well, because I mean, again, for those that are just tuning in, really lucky that Rob was able to join me at a moment's notice, and we've been able to therefore really double down on some of the some of the financial perspective on on private practice. But just a nod to the fact that I was going to then go across. If I'd have been solo, I'd have been probably doing more of a broad span across the different sectors. Mm. And my experiences, particularly working in the NHS, which I did for best part of, if not 10 years, um, including up to advanced practice, there were lots of this conversation happening, not necessarily just on financial reward, but is, is it worthwhile as a careerist, even if you were to stay within the public sector, you know, is there just a conveyor belt where time served means that even if you're not so good, you, you're still going to be able to go up the pay grades? I think that there was mm. there's some legacy of that, and you see some of those relics. But fundamentally, I think these days there's a lot of pressure on those thresholds. Now, within within bands, you know, it's very rare that you hear of people not getting a natural arbitrary pay rise within within pay bands on on that grade but now that it comes to actual competition for those positions um then typically um i think that there's something to be said for clinical excellence there especially with regards to the overlying governance that health education england are bringing into advanced practice i think that's going to help because they're no longer arbitrary standards it's no longer you're good at sitting an interview in front of your mates and they then give you a job that then just rubber stamps you at the same skill set for another pay band i think those things are becoming less arbitrary which is good Jim's made a point about the fact that currently there's a monetary benefit to going into diagnostics rather than rehab. When it comes to clinical excellence, you can be clinically excellent of either of those roles. Now, we are fairly vocal in saying that we, we want to make sure that, that rehab doesn't get left behind. But generally speaking, we definitely don't want people, you'd sooner someone being brilliant at uh, diagnostic triage uh, than 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 not being, you know, he's still aspiring yeah. to be brilliant at whatever it is they might be doing and whatever role it is. So um, you, get, you, you pay for responsibility, I guess. You know, yeah. that's what the, you yeah. get paid for responsibility, and you know, maybe that goes back to that that the surgeon type thing. They have the highest level of responsibility because you know they could far easier kill someone, you know, on on the table, and that's what yeah. that's what they get paid the big bucks for, really. Whereas you know, and that diagnostic side of things, you know, that's what you're paying for is that 
you know, at the end of the day, is to be safe and is to rule out serious, sinister problems. That that's what is the most highest risk part of of our job, and I guess the the, the uh, higher up the chain kind of diagnostic type mm. spectrum. And also interventionally as well. One of the things that I, I remember it felt I, I wasn't comfortable with it at the time, but realizing just how me being someone that injected medicines into people occasionally meant that that then brought with it, you know, in certain jobs that I was being invited to interview for, it was like a, a literal crisp line in, in salary, mm. which felt weird. And then I came to realize, although it was clumsy how it was being worded compared to the position that I held, you understand as to why the responsibility for me injecting substances and you know, medicines into people's bodies, into the right locations and the like, is not just a skill set. It's also that responsibility that you're describing, yeah. right? It's that, that thoughtfulness yeah. and that, that more professional governance that kind of came from that intervention. And so there's something to be, to be said for that, that risk-reward uh, basis that people need to take seriously and also understanding those economic factors in, in, in across the sector as to as to what motivates those sorts of things and not being uh, clumsy or playing politics with it so um, a fascinating one i've got a question here from angie we're out of time and i looked at this and i thought i can't think of a better title for another show <laughs> you know that's the thing on chewing it over is we don't need to visit every corner of this topic in, in a one so, Angie, if you're still listening, or even if you fancied maybe getting into this with me, then that'd be perfect, because I think that innovation meets legacy evidence conversation on clinical excellence, I think is a fascinating one, and, uh, and, and one that we, we, could, we could visit on a few different, in a few different ways. Um, so I don't want to necessarily try and, try and squeeze that in here. But thank you so much for your time, especially on short notice, Rob. It's been, it's been brilliant. Happy uh, to, mate. Flies by. Um, anything else you want to add or, or leave with? No, I think that was good, actually. I, I liked that question, actually. So I'm just looking forward to, uh, to, to doing that one. So hopefully... I might give you more than three minutes notice. Yeah. <laughs> We've got some covered shows uh, from Jim and Flick uh, next week, uh, as I am um, I'm, I'm still local, but technically trying to down some tools and take fewer meetings. So maybe maybe uh, you'll, you'll have Rob lead on, on that one, perhaps, as we, uh, yeah. as we crack on. Um, but also, it looks like... Uh, Angie's happy to chew that over. So maybe that's, that'd be cool. Uh, can I leave that with you, Rob, you and Angie? Uh, yeah, no chewing, it, chewing it over sometime soon. That'd be brilliant. Obviously, I'd be happy to as well, Angie, but I'm just not on, I'm not on the shows next week. So um, thank you so much for the participation. Always love a Friday show. It just gets a bit more lively. I don't know what it is. Everyone's got the Friday feeling, uh, but really enjoyed it. And we'll, we'll all speak to you all soon. All right. Take care. Thanks, Rob. All the best. Thanks for tuning in.